before this episode, I just wanted to soberly address a few comments that I had about the Australian accent I adopted in the last one. Some have said that, apart from being quite poor, it's highly offensive, and I wanted to now express my sincere regrets for the offence that some may have felt. Although, alongside the abuse, I have had some more supportive communications, such as this one, from an Australian called Mark, who said, G'day, Adam. Just wanted to extend my gratitude for putting Australia back on the map. It's not easy being down under. Even though people say we're part of the West, we often get forgotten. Because if you look at the map, we're on the other side. But I always say, if you think about it, we're even more West. Because if you go past America, keep on going head down a little, you'll hit Australia. And that's because the Earth is a globe. Anyway, see you at the beach, mate. Yours, Mark. And I do think the opinion of people like Mark should also be kept in mind. Okay, on with the show. Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I decamped to Shanghai for the weekend with Maria from Australia. After the various pressures at school, disagreements with the management, personality clashes with other teachers, well, all these pressures made a weekend away quite appealing. And I found myself once again staring down the disinterested hotel receptionist with a carefully sculpted look of disbelief. The Bund, I repeated. Sorry, he said. Don't know. There was something distinctly un-international about New Beacon International Hotel. The Bund is one of Shanghai's most obvious go-to tourist hotspots. The most famous remnant of Shanghai's international settlement. We needed to get some idea of an address for the taxi. And so after some befuddled chatter with his co-worker, he made a note and handed it to us. It was all we had, so we took it, shared an uneasy glance, and left. If a Chongshu cab ride is alienating, the Shanghai version is unnervingly bouncy. I looked out of the window across six lanes of taxis, all some cheap Volkswagen model which no one except cab companies bought. They're all pale shades of inoffensive colours, and they darted between one another, honked relentlessly and sped up sharply whenever a few metres of tarmac opened up ahead. Peering around for a seatbelt, I noticed myself to be nakedly exposed to whatever trouble might ensue. The strap was tucked behind the seat and the plug bit was tucked under the seat. Impossible to use. This was the same in all taxis. Rear passengers are at the whim of fate. Safety measures, in fact, were all hogged by the driver himself, as if there was only so much going around. He had a nice snug seatbelt strapped around him, and something which looked like a roll cage around his seat. All taxis had this, this clunky metal roll cage with plastic windows. If it wasn't for safety, it was to deter chatterboxes. Maria, acting like a carefree teenager, said that she didn't care about the seatbelt. That girl was just too cool. Taxi stopped not at the Bund, but surprisingly close, at Shanghai World Financial Centre. It's one of three huge skyscrapers, the other two being the Jinmao Tower and the Shanghai Tower. A cab dropped us off directly underneath the financial centre, in some road that goes under the building. Only when we got outside did we have any idea of the magnitude of the thing. It's 494 metres high with a trapezoid hole, called an aperture, at the top, which makes it look like a bottle opener. Indeed, this has become its nickname, following the likes of London's gherkin, cheese grater and walkie-talkie, or as I call it, the bin. 
The newest of the three skyscrapers is Shanghai Tower. It looks like some creepy metallic worm coated in fish scales slowly protruding in a twisted motion from the earth. At 632 metres, it's currently the second tallest building in the world, after the almighty Burj Khalifa in Dubai. The Shanghai Tower boasts the fastest elevators in the world, three Mitsubishi elevators which travel over 40 miles an hour. The tower's twisting structure is designed to take the edge off the wind at height. The Jim Mao Tower is my personal favourite. It's the oldest of the three giants, completed in 1999, and was Shanghai's first skyscraper. At 420.9 metres, it's also the smallest of the three. But don't let that fool you. A tumble from that height will still leave you with a nasty bruise. Jing Mao means golden prosperity, and the structure positively delights in its extravagance. It rises in sharp, thin latticework with increasing complexity until it culminates in a slender spire. With a spirit that evokes the schizophrenic architecture of colonial Shanghai, and is, more presciently, reminiscent of Deng Xiaoping's liberal attitude towards cats, it draws inspiration from Chinese pagodas and also the art deco of the West. In Chinese culture, the number 8 is symbolic of prosperity, and Jim Mao has 88 floors and a whole host of other things like columns divided around the number 8. Whether it's the mysterious number 8 or the magical essence of the pagoda style, no one can say, but the Jim Mao Tower has provoked some strange behaviour among those raptured by its arresting presence. In 2007, Monsieur Alain Robert, professional climber extraordinaire, was fed up with the Chinese government refusing to let him climb Jim Mao. So he donned his Spider-Man outfit and did it anyway, earning himself 15 days in prison and expulsion from the country. Sadly for him, a random Chinese man called Han Chi Zhe had already scaled it in 2001 on a random impulse, noting to a friend how easy it looked. He had no protective gear and was eventually stopped by police, who were peering out of a window at this man, freezing and bleeding from his hands, just short of the summit. Standing below these three super-tall skyscrapers was awe-inspiring, like, I found myself dumbfounded by their ability to stay up straight. These buildings laugh at the insignificance of such minute, earthbound creatures such as trees and people. They are all-seeing, commanding beings. Indeed, there's something kind of gross about these massive vanity projects, which, when all is said and done, are little more than giant penises. And no penis is complete without balls which were exactly what we found down the road. The Oriental Pearl Tower is perhaps Shanghai's most famous landmark, and is so because of its unusual design, invoking some kind of alien spaceship launching station. It has 11 balls of varying sizes built into its pincer structure. The chrome and shimmering pink is offset by massive pale concrete shafts, which eat into the ground and connect the two biggest balls. The lower one has an amusement arcade and a roller coaster, which transports you directly to the 1980s. And the higher of the two boasts a restaurant and teleportation deck which can beam you to nearby spaceports. Needless to say, this was all incredibly busy. No less than two-thirds of China's 1.4 billion people had apparently turned out to stand below these awesome and curious building creatures. The extreme busyness put me on edge. Jostling for space is something that the Chinese have become notorious for, but when jostling becomes the means and the ends, it gets a bit tiring. We followed the roads to the riverbank, where some space opened by the buildings. This was the Huangpu River, unfortunately remembered for being the place to host 16,000 floating pigs quite dead in 2013, some inadvertent upshot of badly regulated farming. 
Try as we might, we could see no pigs bobbing around on the Huangpu's surface. The width and traffic of the river reminded me of the Thames, although there are far fewer bridges. This feeling was heightened by the sight on the other side. That was the Bund, all in its smart, stately architecture. The Bund is Shanghai's most glaring testament to its colonial past. Huge western buildings, handsome and commanding, cushion the riverbank and the wide road beside it. They were the Far East's monuments to western commerce, lifestyle and culture, and all now proudly, even smugly, fly Chinese flags. The Renaissance-inspired Shanghai Club, number two on the Bund, used to house the longest bar in the world. At 34 metres, it was so long that you could see the curvature of the earth along it, so said Noel Coward. Sadly, if you happened to be Chinese, or a woman, or poor, you'd never be allowed to come in and see if this were true. Instead, Chinese people would have to remain outside, perhaps to stroll through nearby Huangpu Park. Oh no, Chinese are not allowed in the park either. The Shanghai Club Bar acted as a microcosmic actualization of early 20th century social strata. The further you went down the bar, the lower quality of man you would get. But more recent accolades for the Shanghai Club, after the turmoil of war and revolution, include hosting the first ever KFC in Shanghai. Well, that's progress for you. Now the Bund sits on Zhongshan Road, one of countless roads in China and Taiwan named after Sun Yat-sen, or Sun Zhongshan, the revolutionary nationalist leader who saw off the Chinese empire and began building modern China. Sun Yat-sen is the only leader who bears his name on Chinese roads. Even Mao doesn't get this privilege, although he does have pride of place on banknotes. The Taiwanese name streets Zhongshan Road with such fervour that it causes postal problems, and perhaps only China's size prevents that from happening here. China's Guangdong province renamed Shangshan City, Sun's birthplace, as Zhongshan City. There are also numerous districts, stations, houses, memorial halls and parks in China and Taiwan named after the founding father. There are seven universities in China which have at some point been known as Sun Yat-sen University, while there are eponymous universities in Taiwan and Moscow. Sun Yat-sen stamps have been printed and used the world over. There are statues in Toronto, San Francisco, LA, Melbourne and more. Museums dedicated to the man can be found in Hong Kong and Malaysia. While there's a memorial hall in Singapore, commemorative blue plaques in London and Hertfordshire. A New York opera called Dr. Sun Yat-sen and numerous movies charting his life. A Chinese cruiser called Yat-sen and a gunboat called Chungshan were both sunk by the Japanese in the late 1930s. Sun has lent his name to a road in Ontario, another road in Kolkata's Chinatown, a garden in Vancouver, a park in Honolulu, and a mountain on Mars. In Vietnam, the Cao Dai religion, though I'm probably saying that wrong, made Sun a saint, along with Victor Hugo and Nguyen Bing Kiem. As saints, their role is to guide humanity. But we've wandered off the point somewhat. In short, Sun Yat-sen is one hell of a revered dude. In the 1920s, when Sun was trying to reunify China after the fall of the Qing dynasty, his Nationalist Party and the Communists of China worked together to take on the warlords who were ruling the country in a patchwork of competing power bases. It was called the First United Front and allowed the different groups to pursue different opposing aims together. Imagine, if you will, 
UK's Green Party and UK Independence Party forging an alliance to oust the Conservatives. It may be a noble ambition, but who could believe it wouldn't end in bloodshed? And so it was. Sun's left-leaning revolutionary spirit was enough to maintain the alliance while he was alive, but it became increasingly fraught after he died in 1925 of liver cancer, and the right-wing Chiang Kai-shek took the helm. Although, his left-wing rival, Wang Jingwei, was technically the head of the party. With his hatred for the communists, Chiang had common cause with the establishment in Shanghai, which was at the time a hotbed of lucrative business and criminality, and often the two came hand in hand. The communists were making a name for themselves by being opposed to the vices that defined Shanghai in the 20s, the opium addiction and prostitution that gave the city a special identity during this era. Not only that, but peasants in the countryside had been turning on landlords with the encouragement of the communists, and the capitalists in Shanghai didn't want that kind of thing cropping up here. Shanghai in the early 20s was an institutionally corrupt place. You had the business class, the local warlord Lu Yongxiang, and the criminal underworld. The head detective in Shanghai's French concession was Huang Jingrong, who was also the head of the biggest criminal outfit, the Green Gang. Wang Jingrong owned a theatre, and one evening, the son of the local warlord, Liu Yongsheng, made a scene in the theatre, poking fun at the performers. To put him in his place, Huang had his people beat him up. But that just provoked the warlord, who had his people kidnap Huang. At this point, a fairly new but ambitious member of the Green Gang enters the scene. His name was Du Yuesheng, but he's better known as Big Ear Du. Now anyone with a name like that, you just know is going to be a serious don. And so it was. He negotiates the release of Huang, but replaces him as the big cheese in the Green Gang. He buys off the warlords and the French who are running the French concession, and everyone gets stuck into whatever dodgy trades are going. Shanghai went from strength to strength, at least where vice is concerned. It's said that in the period after Big Ear got his hands on things, one in twelve houses in Shanghai was a brothel and most of it was run by the Green Gang. There was also extortion, gambling, connections to legit businesses in banking and shipping, and of course opium, which Big Ears himself was well into. Then, in 1926, Chiang's first united front took up arms to defeat the warlords, and in Shanghai the communists and union workers were headed by one Zhou Enlai, who you might recall from episodes 5 and 6, went on to become Premier of China the trusted and capable sidekick to the all-powerful Chairman Mao. Well, back in the 1920s, the young revolutionary was in Shanghai, and under his command they staged an armed uprising, which sent the warlord there packing. The communists found themselves in charge of large parts of the city, but there was a problem. Those powerful forces in Shanghai didn't want Zhou and his communists messing things up, and neither did Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang had made some extremely useful connections with the powerful Sun family. Through them, he established a working relationship with Big Ear Du and his Green Gang, getting money from the city's capitalists to fund the payments that the gang required to do the bloody deed that was to come. They'd already infiltrated the communist network throughout the city. All that was needed was a signal. Early in the morning of April the 12th, 1927, a bugle blared out followed by sirens and the gunboats on the Huangpu River. At that, the Green Gang swung into action, killing communists and their worker allies in their thousands, or anyone who might be suspected of leaning in that direction. People were beheaded in the streets. 
there was a grisly start to what's sometimes called the White Terror, a more widespread purge of communists across China. Zhou Enlai himself was crafty enough to escape the Shanghai Massacre. Some say he had a good enough connection with Chiang Kai-shek to secure a path out with his wife. But either way, he'll be cropping up later in this story as an absolutely pivotal and quite mysterious figure of revolutionary China. As for the rest of the communists, the surviving ones at least, they retreated to the countryside in Jiangxi to begin the long Chinese civil war during which Mao Zedong would become the big cheese of that particular outfit. The Shanghai Massacre would become an important part of the CCP's mythological story about how they came from persecuted underdogs to rulers of China. Through his ruthlessness, though, Chiang had really angered those who were supposed to be in charge of his nationalist party, namely Wang Jingwei, who ran his government out of Wuhan. This is another important relationship that we'll need to come back to in due course. Yes, Chiang's actions in making that Faustian pact with the Green Gang and Big Ear Du would have seismic consequences and set all these rivals off on different and intersecting courses for the next two decades. The nationalists held Shanghai, China's biggest city, until May 1949, when the communists piled in with hundreds of thousands of troops. Big Ear Du saw which way the winds were blowing, and he fled to Hong Kong. The UK Spectator newspaper noted on the 27th of May 1949, after the battle, how the business centre wasn't destroyed, and local civilians had received the conquering communists with typically bemused but courteous welcome. That very same day was the last for one of Shanghai's most successful newspapers, the Shumbao, which had operated out of the international settlement for 78 years. It had endured intimidation before, even assassinations, one of which, at the hands of the Japanese, resulted in a severed head on the street. But in 1949, something must have told them that the game was up. The Shumbao building is now a restaurant called The Press. The menu reads, Hot off the press, historic Shumbao reopens as popular dining destination. The staff wear t-shirts with the words Paperboy and Chief Editor. And the takeaway booth is cleverly called Press Release. It's one of a number of inventive concept restaurants in Shanghai. At the other end of town is one where you can eat from a toilet bowl, no less. Needless to say, concept restaurants are tolerated much more than an actual free press in modern China. On the window outside the press is a quote by Thomas Jefferson. Where the press is free and every man able to read, all is safe. Well, you don't even need a punchline for a joke like that. The seizure of Shanghai meant that communist China would now have to deal with the outside world for that's where China's international relations took place, something that the spectator looked forward to with measured optimism, reporting, The available evidence, though it is slender, suggests that the official communist attitude towards constructive foreign enterprises is not likely to be much more hostile or restrictive than was that of their predecessors. Well, someone should return their crystal ball, because that's not at all how things panned out under the communists. The riverfront had a small collection of trinket shops, Maria haggled with the lady over a wafer-thin scarf. I'd later hear the exact same technique used in Chinese language learning dialogue. The lady quoted a price, at which point Maria exclaimed, Tai Guela! Too expensive, and offered a little less than half. We don't do haggling here, said the lady, to which Maria nodded in sad understanding and walked away. Kai kai, yelled the lady. Can, can. Maria got her price and not sent more. Then I bought a fake gold pocket watch with the likeness of Jude, 
a long-dead communist general. It was a pound, for God's sake. I'm not going to haggle for something like that. You've got to, pleaded Maria. That's how it's done. History is still being made at the Bund. Not long after I visited, on New Year's Eve, a nightclub next to Chen Yi Square made the unwise decision to throw fake money from a balcony into a packed crowd, resulting in a stampede which crushed 36 people, mostly women, to death. At first, the local police claimed some tourists had fallen over. There's something almost unfair about occupying the same space that witnessed shocking incidents in the past, to be separated by those incidents solely by time. The ghosts of such disasters are well hidden by the slick architecture and smooth roads of the now. And without looking for it, you'd never know. But few specks of land are without their demons. At the northern end of the Bund, there's the vaguely titled Monument to the People, three concrete shards almost linking up at their summit, rising ever closer as is history's want, kept apart by unfinished business. Around the structure are workers and fighters plighted narratives, tales of resistance and shared anonymous heroism carved into the pale walls. A few months later, the inescapable K-pop star Lu Han took a photo beside a post box here on Zhongshan Road. After posting it on social media, Hordes of fans queued up, some until 3am, to take a photo beside the same post box. It's things like this that make people think the world isn't made of real people, but simulants. Surely no one with agency would do something so ridiculous, they must be programmed. It's a compelling argument. And that's all for today's episode, so I leave you here from a sunny winter's London, and uh, next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, public humiliation.